today's reading is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor an uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Jenny did make a funny face at the very end because it is uh, slightly scary um, text there at the very end. But it is still God's word. Let's pray that God will speak to us this morning. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for your word that it equips us uh, for every good work. Um, we pray that uh, you would speak to us and capture our vision uh, with the grace of uh, Christ that our lives bear, may bear fruit. Uh, in good works. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a picture that's coming up. Um, can anybody guess what this picture, what, what the thing in the picture is? Very good. Um, I'm sure the context also helped you. It is yeast. Apparently yeast is a single cell fungus, common fungus. It thrives in flour and wheat, uh, flour and heat. When you put it into flour, apparently flour, the sugar is maltose, the disaccharide, so two sugar molecules together. When you throw yeast in there, these disaccharides get divided into single uh, glucose, and byproduct apparently is carbon dioxide. And with the flour and water, the, uh, the structure that forms with flour and water apparently is uh, gluten. And gluten is a fairly... Uh, uh, strong structure, and so what happens as the carbon dioxide is produced, it then expands, and this is how you get all these bubbles and delicious bread. So a little yeast will work through a whole batch of dough. So Paul writes in verse 9, of course, he's not giving you a cooking lesson or a science lesson. He's talking about the effect of bad teaching, how it could spread very quickly to the whole church. Their deadly teaching, if unheeded, will spread. He says in verse 7 that they already cut them off from running the good race, from obeying the truth. Verse 8, he says that they do not come from God, but they come, he hints that they come from the evil one. He says in verse 10 that they, these people who are spreading this false teaching, will be punished. 
He goes on to say further in verse 12 that those who advocate for circumcision shouldn't stop at circumcision, but just cut them off, emasculate themselves. That teaching, what Paul is saying, is very dangerous. We need to look out for what they're teaching. Of course, we shouldn't be dogmatic about everything. Um, We need to distinguish between things of primary importance and of secondary importance. Some things are not as important. Um, I mean, things like uh, what actually happens uh, in communion table, or what you think about infant baptism, or how we should go about doing church discipline. All those things are uh, very, very important, but in some ways they are secondary things. Paul's not getting worked up about those things, but whether... Paul says, one should be circumcised or not. He says that this is actually of primary importance. He says, um, he's been saying that being circumcised or adding law to the grace of Christ means going back to the slavery of the law. And we're freed from the law. Verse 1, I mean, he puts it in the most clear, strongest terms. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus died to set us free from the law. And this is serious matter because adding circumcision to the grace of Christ means not only you're adding that one thing. If you add one thing, he's saying that in verse 3, he says you have to add the whole law. You can't pick and choose which one of the old covenant that you're going to follow. If you're going to pick circumcision, you are obligated to obey the whole law. He became, also, this means that uh, sacrifice of Christ becomes useless for us because Jesus became a curse for us, but going back to the old covenant means that we will work out the blessings and curses for ourselves. And that's why Jesus, uh, Paul says in verse 2 that Christ will be of no value if we add circumcision. We're alienated from Christ and his grace. Verse 4. That's how serious that is. If you add circumcision, he says, you are being alienated from Christ and the grace that Christ gives. Of course, circumcision is not such a big deal to each one of us. When we think of a good Christian, we don't automatically go, oh, somebody who's circumcised. But we do add all kinds of things to the law. We do add all these rules to our Christian life, don't we? Haven't we said to somebody, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus, but then you have to do all these other things. You have to come to church. You have to give money and be generous. Uh, You have to believe in Christ and become a better person, and so on. I mean, as good as that sounds, actually, if we do this, we are adding something to the grace of Christ, aren't we? We're saying, and if we add one or two things, we're not just adding one or two things. We're actually adding a whole moral system. We have to do all these other things as well. The gospel is this, that there is no grace plus. There is no grace and. As one writer puts it, if you add grace uh, with anything, then you get nothing. And actually, it's worse than nothing. You get cut off from Christ and his grace. It's a subtraction. But if if you add to grace nothing, you get everything. Christ sets us free. We're profoundly freed from obligation to, uh, to the law. This, of course, begs the question, then, you're going, then how am I supposed to know how to live my life? How am I, uh, now can I live my life as I want to live? Can I be a Christian without going to church, without tithing, without being a good person? If our works do not matter at all, 
then does that mean I can even sin? And let me say, these are great questions. And if you haven't asked these questions to yourself or to other people, it might mean that actually you do not understand the radical nature of grace. This, the, the grace, uh, understanding this, should lead us to these questions. Um, if we've always assumed that somehow we have to still contribute to our salvation, we have to make the effort to uh, contribute to our salvation, uh, then we haven't understood grace. This is what William Temple, Archbishop William Temple once said, the only thing of our very own we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. This, in this equation of salvation, the only thing that you bring to the table is the sin which makes salvation necessary. We shouldn't add to the grace of Christ more laws, even if they're good laws. Because what Christ has done when he came, um, he's replaced it with faith. He's replaced it with the faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. And it has ushered in a new way of being, new way of living. Um, and this faith, I think this is the problem. When we think of faith, we, when we believe in Jesus, when we say that we believe in Jesus, we think of it just as a mental assent, we believe this. But actually, it's much more than that. Look at what faith does to a person's life. This is what he says in verse 5 and 6. And this is something that actually he's been hinting at throughout the uh, letter. And he will go to talk about this more later in chapter 5. But uh, take a look there in verse 5. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. This is the radical thing about faith. It's not just a mental ascent. When you believed, God sent the Holy Spirit in you. When you believed something supernatural happened in you, in, in your life. Paul says um, that uh, uh, in, in the Spirit, when God breathed uh, His Spirit in us, it will drive us, it will compel us to righteous living. This is not something that you are doing to add to your salvation, but this is something that the Spirit is prompting in you to live righteously. He says, actually, that we are hoping for this righteousness um, as if this will come in the future. But um, it, it will, we will be made completely righteous in the future. But that hope is not an uncertain hope. Biblical hope is things that have already been revealed that will come. Spirit guarantees that we will stand righteous before God. He's changing us now and he's guiding us now. Paul writes elsewhere that those whom God had called, he also justified. And those who he has justified, he also sanctified and he will glorify. Romans 8.30. Under the new covenant, it's not the law that dictates what to do. Under the new covenant, it's the spirit. In the age of faith, the spirit will guide us. It will prompt us to do good works, to live righteously. And you know this because you know how you feel when you sin. Christians here, when you sin, you don't go, well, I'm saved, and so therefore I'll sin again tomorrow. You just can't do it. As you sin again and again, you will go, I can't go on living like this. That's because Christ, um, the Christ's spirit in you compels you not to do it. And if you do not feel that compulsion in you, dare I say, you might not be saved. You might not actually have, have a grace of Christ in you. Christians, when we believe, this is not a rational thing. This is not just a decision that we make. Something supernatural happens. We are reborn. 
God's Spirit is breathed into us and we become a new creation. We become free. So that's what the thing that faith does. As we believe, God sends His Spirit to us. But also, the second thing that it does, it transforms our motivation to obey. Why we would do the things that we would do. It's a strange thing if you read it, right? So at the very first section, Paul was all about how you shouldn't be circumcised. If you are circumcised, then all these bad things will happen. You'll be cut off from Christ and, and disqualified from his grace. But then in verse 6, he goes on to say, but neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value in Christ Jesus. He says, actually, it's not about whether you obey the law or not at all. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. See, that's the profound truth in, about this faith, um, about the gospel. The law itself was never bad, but it was never about obeying the law or not obeying the law. It was never about your obedience to the law. Uh, in case of circumcision, actually, the law was a good thing, right? It, because when God set his people apart, he said, be circumcised and set yourselves apart from the rest of the world. And we should do that as well. Our lives should testify to the fact that we are God's people now. Right? It's a good thing. We know that coming to church is, is a good thing. In fact, there are many exhortations. We, in fact, that generous giving is a good thing. Standard for giving in, in the New Testament is Jesus who gave everything, um, uh, every, everything, including his life, to others. That's the standard. And that is a good thing. But it's not whether we come to church. It's not whether we tithe. It's not whether we obey these things that matter. It's not what counts. Circumcision was never about circumcision. It has always been about why we do the things that we do. Whether one is circumcised or not is nothing. The only thing that counts is faith that animates and energizes you towards, toward, towards love, acts of love. So I, let me ask, why do you come to church each week? Why do you come to church? Why do you help others? Why are you generous? Why do you keep the Sabbath holy? Why do you share the gospel with others? Why do you work uh, for God in your, in, your, um, in your workplaces? Why do you volunteer for Sunday school? And why do you do all the things that you do? Why do you love your neighbor? Let me tell you, unless you, are all, uh, unless you understand... Um, the assurance that comes from trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ. Unless you are absolutely sure that nothing that you are doing is actually contributing to your salvation, but you have received this grace before, uh, before uh, you need to contribute anything, unless you're absolutely assured, you're actually just, um, uh, you're doing it for selfish reasons. You're doing it for selfish reasons because you're trying to put God in debt. You're trying to say, I'm going to work. So you will have to get me into heaven. You'll have to let me into heaven. You're slaving away under the law. That's what you do if you don't understand grace. Think about it. Unless you're settled in grace, the reason why we work is to be good so that we might be acceptable to God. And unless we are guaranteed already a place by grace alone, all religious people are doing is trying to get God to be in debt. Our good works aren't offered then to God. It's offered to ourselves. It's offered for our benefit. We do it for ourselves. This is why we get um, angry 
when God sends us suffering our way. Because we say, well, I don't deserve this. I have been good. God, why are you doing this to me? As if we deserve any better. This is why we get self-righteous when others get the promotion that they don't deserve. When the evildoers actually prosper, we go, no, but I have been slaving all these years for you, God. Why is it that I'm not getting what I deserve? But you see, that's slave mentality. Faith in the gospel changes all of that. When we believe these obligations disappear, Christ guarantees our salvation through grace alone. Christ tells us that, uh, that what we deserve, actually, no matter what, how good you are, what you deserve is actually death. On the cross, even the best one of the world, right, the, the best human beings, what they deserve is death on the cross. And the gospel tells us that instead of putting ourselves to death on the cross, that Jesus took our place there. That he's given us this grace. And we are adopted as children and heirs of his kingdom. Realizing this, we might obey. Um, uh, This is how we become, we obey, not as slaves, but as children. We will obey Um, because we are so captured by what God has done for us um, that we will do the right things. But I think this is a, can I just say, this is a thing that you really need to realize. God does not need you um, to do good works. God does not need you to change the world. God is God. God can do this on his own. God God does not need your good works. When Jesus died on the cross, that was for us because he loved us. Because he has no other motivation but that he loves us. When I say things like this, I've heard somebody say, well, God guilt trips us for, um, towards, um, uh, guilt trips us into doing good things. Um, as if God is some passive aggressive, um, God who, you know, does the nice thing and says, you should really be nice. No, that's not, God, that's not what God is doing. When God sent Jesus to die on the cross, it's not because he needs us to do good. It's because he loves us and because he wants to die for us. No other reason than that. And when you realize that, then you realize that your works do not contribute to your salvation, that your works do not earn your way into salvation. But when you get that, you will be changed into a people who understand God's grace and work for God because you want to. Right? Remember when you became a Christian? I don't know how many years ago you became a Christian, but when you became a Christian, isn't that what you did? You were freed from slavery of the law. And then you you said, I want to live my life for God. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because Christ has done this for me. You offered yourself freely to obedience um, to Christ. Not because you have to, but because you wanted to. Because you were moved by the grace of God. That's the gospel. We're freed from the slavery to the law. And we become children of God without any obligations. That's the only thing that counts. So as we believe in Jesus, we're freed, we're given the Holy Spirit. God transforms our motivation by capturing us with his love. And that is the greatest message that we can share, we can preach to ourselves and to others. 
But apparently, somebody was saying uh, that Paul was preaching uh, circumcision himself in verse 11. But Paul says, this cannot be because I'm being persecuted. I'm being persecuted because I'm preaching the cross of Christ, which is offensive, he says. Well, why is this good news offensive? Why is it that... um, that uh, this, this good news of grace, how can that be offensive? Well, it's offensive to all those who are trying desperately to be good. The cross says, actually, you're not, gonna go, you're not going to be good. For the rest of your life, you're going to be sinners. That's why it's offensive. It says that you cannot save yourself, but that Christ has saved you on the cross. God gave his son, Jesus. I think this, I hope you get this. Um, So uh, I hope this is the gospel that you preach to yourself and to others. While you're teaching your children, while you're teaching your um, students. We have many, many teachers and professors here, and we have many um, parents here. What are you teaching? What are you going to teach? If you have your little baby, what are you going to teach your children? The message that I hear around elite institutions in Hong Kong and around the world is this. You are great. You are the great one. You, you are the smart ones. You are the ones given all these opportunities. You are great. And so, therefore, go and change the world with your greatness. In a way, this is a self-flattering message, isn't it? You are great. You have the capacity to change the world. That's what it says. I mean, it's in a way, it is... a. Um, uh, salvation by works. That's what we're preaching. We're saying, you are good enough to change the world. Is that what we're teaching? Is that what you're teaching, Daniel, at DGS? Is that what we're teaching um, here in Changshu Tim School and all the teachers in Hong Kong, you or uh, CUHK, we have many professors. What, what, what are you, as not you know, your subject, but as Christians in your workplace, um, in, in these institutions, what are you teaching to your students? What are you teaching your children? Are we teaching the offense of the cross? Are we pointing people to the cross and say, actually, you are sinful. That even the best of you are still sinful. That you, what you deserve is the cross. Is that what we're teaching? And as we point to the cross, are we pointing them to the gospel? Because if we went at Changshu Tim School at Hong Kong University or whatever, if we get people to, um, if we pointed uh, these uh, students to the cross, we're not just saying, we're saying, um, we're not saying that you are good, you can change the world. What we're saying is, there is actually, even the best of you, there's something deeply wrong with you. And you will not be able to save yourself and you will not be able to save the world by yourselves. If we point to the cross, we're we're saying that that's what we deserve. But as we point to the cross, what if some of these students came to realize the grace of Jesus Christ? That they don't have to be good in order to be accepted by God. That they don't have to excel in these classes to be accepted. That they don't have to get into best universities in order to become somebody. That they don't have to change the world in order to be someone of importance. What if we pointed to the gospel and said, you are unconditionally loved and accepted by God as we point to the cross, that their future is secure not because what they will do and what they, because of their their potential, but because God in Christ Jesus has secured a place for them. What if they realize that they are somebody already because God Almighty has died for each one of them? 
And they get their self-worth from there. They get their identity on the cross from the gospel. You know, if they did this, they got this, wouldn't their lives change? Wouldn't they be so transformed to do good? Wouldn't their faith translate into works of love? What are we teaching our students? What are we teaching our children? What are we telling our colleagues as we share the gospel? Are we saying salvation by works? Are we saying salvation by grace? Beatrice uh, Webb was an English sociologist, economist, and social reformer who worked very hard to establish welfare system in, um, in, the, uh, in England. She was one of the founders of LSE London uh, School of e- Economics and played a crucial role in, in, in fi- if, uh, founding the welfare system there. And although she has been raised, she was raised in the church, uh, she renounced her faith when she was young, but she worked tirelessly to create a better society. Now, this is what he wrote in her diary in 1925. Somewhere in my diary, in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I now realize the perm- uh, how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man, how little we can change these, for example, the greed of wealth and power. We must continually be asking for better things from our own and from other person, human nature, but shall we get any responses? Without a response, how can we shift social institutions from off the basis of brutal struggle for existence and power and onto that of fellowship? No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb these evil impulses and set free ourselves for good. Can this be done without the authoritative ethics associated with faith and the spirit of love at work in the universe? After 35 years of working to establish a better society, what Webb realized is the gospel. They can't do it by themselves, can they? We are enslaved by our human nature, um, to our sinfulness, uh, to our evil impulses. And no knowledge or science can curb these evil impulses, she says. But what she couldn't accomplish, what no one can accomplish, the gospel accomplishes. God sent Jesus Christ. And when we get this, when we become people of faith, our hearts are so transformed that it will work towards love. That God sends the Holy Spirit in us, that our evil impulses are curbed, that we become more and more like Christ Jesus. But this means that we need to preach the gospel, which that which says we are sinners, that only God can save us. But as we preach this gospel, we will be freed. We'll be freed to do the works of love, which is the only thing that matters. Let's let's pray. Lord, we um, give you great praise and thanks for your son, Jesus. And Lord, we have heard these stories of the cross and what you've done a thousand times. But Lord, we confess that there are among us uh, people who are slaving away, not as children, but as slaves. 
And so, Lord, we pray now that you would fill this room and fill our hearts with your spirit. Capture our vision um, to the grace of what Christ has done for us, that we might be freed, that we might no longer work to contribute to our salvation, but we will uh, we'll be moved to obey you and love you with all of our lives. Would you transform our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.